Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Immuno-Oncology 360 Conference, also known as IO360, on the topic of improving T-cell therapies via next-generation technologies. This session is led by Dr. Gabola Amusa, Partner, Director of Research, and Head of Healthcare Research for Chardon. Dr. Amusa is joined by Dr. Robert Ang of Neon Therapeutics, Dr. Usman Azam of Tumunity, Michael Dombeck of Precision Biosciences, and Dr. Eamon Shalaby of GSK. The next IO360 program will take place February 26th through 28th, 2020, at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining this panel. I'm Bola Musa, partner and biotech analyst at Chardon. Um, where our focus is identifying companies that will create exceptional returns by creating real value for society. Uh, so I'm delighted uh, to actually moderate this panel, which is focused on improving T-cell therapies uh, using next-generation technologies. So with that, uh, in alphabetical order, we have Robert Ang, Chief Business Officer of Neon Therapeutics, Oz Azam, President and CEO of Team Unity, Michael Dombeck, VP of Business Development at Precision Biosciences, and Eamon Shalaby, uh, VP R&D, Cell and Gene Therapies at GSK. Um, so I'd like to start uh, to the panel with really an overview question, and we'll dig into some of these issues uh, throughout the panel. But could you frame what we've learned over the past year or two um, in terms of the biggest challenges that we need to overcome uh, to make T-cell immunotherapies actualize their potential? Um, so I'll start in the reverse order of introductions. Uh, maybe we'll start with Eamon. Go across. Hi, and thank you for the uh, opportunity to chat with the group today. So, you know, I, um, it's, a, it's a very good question, and I think uh, one of the things that we realize with uh, the kind of explosion of any new technology with, with this great data coming out is there's sometimes a lag time uh, between good data that's coming and the volume of good people that you need to bring that data to life. Um, and I think we went through this with the checkpoint inhibitors and you know, we saw that uh, there was a huge need for uh, good people to bring that good data to life. So it's HR strategy I think is really important. Great. Awesome. Where to begin, but I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, I think for me the biggest learning has been sort of being involved with cell therapy since 2012 is, is now the pivoting from interesting science, uh, and I think Axel pointed this out this morning, moving from in vitro and in vivo models that just don't predict what happens in the ultimate model, which is humans. And so getting from preclinical into clinical settings is probably the next big bottleneck as I see it. Uh, and I think uh, refreshing is the, that while there was a government shutdown going on, the FDA still announced some fantastic news that they realize the challenges and see you know, over 100 INDs flowing through from cell and gene companies in the next two to three years, and they expect 10 to 20 products uh, getting approved by 2025. So, hence adding to that uh, ability now to really help catalyze that preclinical to clinical translation, I think that's the next big frontier break that coupled with the competency issue that Iman mentioned. So I'd uh, focus on the accessibility of these. To really realize the full potential, uh, we need to be able to get it to everyone who can benefit from it. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is that the first approved CAR-T products 
uh, are a profound step forward in therapeutic applications. Uh, but we're seeing the, the reality of the challenge of a specialized therapy with specialized manufacturing that needs to be administered in a specialized facility by a specialized physician uh, is wonderful for those who can access it. Uh, but to, to realize the full potential of uh, these sorts of therapeutics, we as an industry and as developers need to find a way to make that as accessible to as many patients as possible. I think the challenge depends on who you are. So if you're Nevada's you know, Juno Kite, it's really about getting products to market and um, making them accessible and treating patients and really amortizing the huge investments that others have, have made in it. I think then comes uh, from the existing products, what next? And there's so many unanswered questions about what targets you choose, the, uh, what you need to do to get into solid tumor, uh, the bells and whistles you can put on it, what about allogeneic, all the you know, process improvements you can make. I think there's a plethora of uh, options um, that you need the choicefulness to determine how to move. Great, thanks. So let, let's talk a little bit about engineering the optimal uh, phenotype. Uh, a lot of promise obviously has come out of the world of gene editing, uh, which has the potential to improve T-cell immunotherapies greatly. What do you each consider the best approaches currently um, in terms of applications of gene editing? Um, and what are the obstacles or bottlenecks that currently exist? Uh, let's start with Mike and then go to Oz after. Sure, thank you. Uh, so we heard some of the examples earlier of, of what gene editing can do, and there are all sorts of knockouts that we can potentially do to T cells. There are all sorts of knock-ins and modifications and things that could be we could have expressed by the T cells. Uh, and just the, the menu of possibilities of how to modify T cells uh, is, is fascinating, the potential is so exciting. Uh, but I think in terms of Gabola's question, what is the most important, uh, in terms of, to my comment about accessibility, uh, I think for gene at the core of it is that being able to enable allogeneic off-the-shelf products uh, from healthy donors. We, you know, we have to start there and get that right and make the most of that. As, and, and once we have that, moving on to what are the other modifications we can do and, and what do they potentially add uh, to the cell that is, is valuable uh, in terms of making new products and advancing products. And Gabala asked about the, the bottlenecks associated with that. Um, and in the, the last talk, we heard a little bit about phenotype, and Gabola just mentioned this. And I think in terms of a bottleneck, that, that is the key bottleneck is the phenotype of the cell. And all of these modifications we can do, the knockouts and the knock-ins and the different expressions, they, they come with a phenotypic cost. And when you're trying to preserve as naive a phenotype, and a central memory phenotype, as you can with these cells, because we are seeing that that gives you the most efficient, most effective, best tolerated cell therapy product, every time you consider an additional modification, we have to think about what is the consequence of that? What is the cost? And is modifying the cell to do that the best way to do that? Or are we better off thinking about combining the cells with other alternative modalities that are already 
available uh, and can be put to use. And we just don't know yet. I, I believe there are modifications that are going to make sense, that are going to be worth that phenotypic cost of that modification, that engineering to the T cells. But we need to be deli deliberate about thinking about which of those uh, are going to be worth that trade-off and what can be accomplished in other ways and not just assume that uh, engine, you know, engineering to the max, uh, our, our TSL product is the right way to go. Oz, uh, any further thoughts on translatability and knowing, let's say, what a good construct is before getting to a human model? So new uh, doesn't necessarily mean better than old, right, in the world of gene editing. And what is new is suddenly becoming old, uh, if you think about it. That's the speed of exponential sort of growth that's happened in the field of gene editing as I see it. And uh, to answer the question, which is the best approach, I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, we have um, a great beachhead formed, uh, you know, from data that's emerged from zinc fingers over the years. Uh, Talon's megatiles, we're starting to get a handle on. CRISPR is still unknown uh, in terms of translatability to, to how that's going to pan out. So this goes back again now to my point earlier. That bridge from preclinical thinking to getting into the clinic is, is going to be key and vital. So when I think of a technology like CRISPR, or actually for whatever gene editing technology you can, you can utilize, um, from a product therapeutic perspective, building a little bit on Michael's point, you know, I'm thinking about this in the setting of uh, combinatorial therapies and how do we enhance the synthetic biology that we have? How do we knock out PD-1, for example, with a view to preventing cell exhaustion and, and create a better product? And then we're also thinking, to Michael's point, around allogeneics. And how do you create the ultimate allogeneic, whether that be knocking out beta-2 microglobulin, whether it's an NK cell, gamma-delta cell, whether you're looking at iPSCs. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the tools and technologies have been there for a while. They're exponentially improving. The puck is already moving past CRISPR-Cas9, right? And you start to look at base editing and CRISPR-X now. And keeping up with all of this is a huge challenge for companies like my own, which are desperately moving forward into the clinical domain, utilizing as many of these tools as possible. So uh, I think it's an exciting time to be doing this, but I've given you a sense of the building blocks that we're looking at, certainly from a team unity perspective, and how do we then translate and show that the, the editing platforms actually lead to meaningful clinical benefits. And at the end of the day, it, that's going to be translated with human data. And you're seeing the, the speed with which that now is happening. Uh, we all pray it happens faster. We all pray it happens in larger patient populations. But I think that's what we're going to be seeing in the next five to 10 years. And then open question to the group. Um, on the topic of T cell persistence and the optimal time uh, necessary for durable responses, uh, any thoughts there? Just repeat that once more in the durable response, please. Oh, um, how long do transferred T cells have to persist in the body uh -huh. to see durable responses? Um, what, what's the, what do you see as the optimal time for T cell persistence, and can that duration be reached with allogeneics? You asked the billion-dollar question there, didn't you? Uh, I mean, that's the challenge for the field. Um, look, we have a, a beachhead of data now in the CD19 world, which is translating to people out now with complete remissions out to six years plus. Now, we hope it stays that way, but cancer is a very, very intelligent foe with escape me mechanisms and new antigens that form before our eyes. Um, 
I think in terms of products that we want to create, certainly in the solid tumor space, we are wanting to see T cells that power on and that you know, we can see utility out to six to 12 months at minimum. And that's a big, big hurdle right now if you think about T cell exhaustion and how to get these T cells to really boost and persist in the environment. But I think uh, without conquering that and without thinking about modalities that may be repeatable and reinfusable, because I think that's certainly going to be the case with solid tumors, um, you know, this is going to be an extremely difficult challenge to then justify um, these products in the future marketplace. So I think that's where a lot of focus and effort, both from the science and the companies, is ongoing in terms of how do you unlock those, those immunobiology mechanisms that are going to power and persist these cells on. If I, if I could just build on that, I, I think the answer is not going to all lie within that T-cell persistence of, of you know, what you've administered. I think it's going to go far beyond that from a biologic perspective. But um, you know, we, we tend to um, put new ideas into our existing mindset, and the approval of the first CAR-Ts have been a single dose, you know, one-time injection and manage it and see what happens after. But I think the reality is, you know, we may be actually need to go back to the olden days of vancomycin dosing or some sort of pharmacokinetic-based, pharmacodynamic-based dosing strategies. I have no idea how we're going to figure this out, but, you know, if you just kind of dig deep into your um, uh, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, how can we get there and, and, you know, take it a step further in terms of personalizing these things in an, another level? Um, and maybe we can identify the right PD markers beyond just T-cell persistence to help us with that dosing strategy. It's going to be difficult to do that with an autologous therapy for sure. It's hard to do it with a living drug, right? It is. It's hard enough, uh, you know, uh, people have walked away from warfarin and vancomycin and all the other drugs uh, with better, better agents now available. Uh, but the more we can experiment with that now, the more we can learn and then hopefully uh, take it to the next level. Great. Next question is for Robert, and anyone, please feel free to jump in after Robert. So we, we all know tumors can become resistant to T-cell therapies through the loss of antigen or reduction in MHC antigen presentation. Um, so some companies uh, and academics are developing therapies targeting two or more antigens, as an example. So what do you see as the most promising uh, approach or approaches uh, to minimize potential sources of relapse? along these lines. Yeah, we heard about that even this morning. So uh, at Neon, we have two T-cell programs. We're probably more better known for our vaccines, but we actually have two programs that are marching forward rapidly. So one is a, a fully personal T-cell program called NeoPTC01. And this T-cell program uses the mutations from each patient. We use a tumor biopsy. We then use um, uh, sequencing, whole exome sequencing, to figure out what the right mutations are, and the bioinformatics platform to figure out the best mutations to target from an immunological standpoint. Then we actually have a, an ex vivo process called NeoStim, and NeoStim basically takes these epitopes with the patient's own T cells and antigen presenting cells and creates new T cell populations based on the mutations of the patient's own tumor. So, so the vision here is that we're essentially replicating what the body should have done in the first place, which is recognize the mutations and epitopes from, uh, from cancer, but instead doing it in a controlled ex vivo process. This, is, this should be um, 
heading towards the clinic soon. And uh, this enables you to get multiple T-cell populations against multiple epitopes that will hopefully prevent the escape. We're also working on a second program, which is around TCRs. And TCRs, uh, as we've heard from this morning, are dependent on the expression of an epitope and presentation on a particular MHC. You can downregulate the epitope, you can downregulate the MHC. So one strategy we're using is that we're primarily looking at neoantigen targets that are driver mutations. So these are hopefully driver targets that the tumor is rather dependent on. And so if they lose the target, hopefully they lose their own biology. A, a second mechanism is, as was discussed by um, Dr. Kalos, is that maybe there's combination treatments that allow you to improve what happens after the therapy. Um, as Ayman mentioned, there's a lot of complicated biology here, and something that we've discovered is that epitope spread is a key mechanism to rely upon, which is after the therapy, you really trigger the immune system to have a cascading effect towards other epitopes. And so we would hope to see that. We're tracking it in our vaccines, and we'll certainly track it in our T-cell programs too. And similar, so we have heard great ideas uh, over the last few days about all sorts of novel uh, scientific approaches to this. So from a, a CAR-T perspective, uh, dual targeting cars or delivering dual cars to a T-cell and engineering them and, uh, and just a lot of really creative novel solutions uh, to approaching this. Uh, but we heard some ideas today that I, I think are important to for us to consider as we go down and evaluate these paths that ultimately what we're talking about with the you know, dual targeting and whatnot is, is a pre-formulated combination therapy. And if you look at the history of the industry, most of those have been too smart for their own good uh, and, and really take the decision away from the physician at the point of care. And so I think it's important for us to consider the best solution might be just giving as many tools as possible to the oncologist. Uh, we heard this a couple of times this morning even, that for someone uh, with, um, say, NHL or, or ALL, that an oncologist who has an off-the-shelf CD19, CD20, CD22, and can personalize the treatment of their physician by uh, their patient by choosing the therapies they want out of the pharmacy might be the best way to do it rather than us engineering in things that uh, sound brilliant but might not be the right fit for anyone. Great. So on the topic of innovation uh, in the composition of starting materials uh, to get a final T-cell product, um, can you talk a little bit about alternative cell types, such as uh, TILs, gamma-delta T-cells, or even iPS cells to produce a therapy um, and focus on uh, uh, any, any, or you can also focus on any defining specific, sorry, focus on specific T-cell subsets uh, making up the final product. How, how might these parameters be incorporated in cell-based immunotherapies in the coming years? I think it's going to be uh, sort of the next big thing, I think, in cell therapies in terms of a deeper understanding of the phenotype of cells and selection. So I think there's a, there's a math and engineering problem around it, right? I think in terms of the, the basic biology, and we all have our favorites, right, whether you're an NK believer or a gamma delta cell believer, but um, I think 
that math problem is going to improve significantly now in terms of companies and their capabilities of cell enrichment and cell selection. So I think that that, that I'm hopeful about. Um, but then the, the bigger problem in the nut to crack, really, and you know, companies like Fate, for example, are making great progress when you look at IPSCs and car approaches, uh, et cetera, and many others. So I think that the next point then is really going to be clinical translatability of that. And again, going back to you know, the math and engineering problem is, is getting better. Um, but then there will need to be those additional analytics that need to be developed about potent products, right? If you're really harvesting down into subset of T cells, and, and let's, let's be very frank, if you think about the first generation CAR T therapies, to an extent now, while you know, there were 30 years in the making, you know, a couple of years later, some of us are now making a, a bad assumption that they're kind of crude still in terms of our understanding around ratios of cells, effector memory phenotype, central memory phenotype of cells. So even within the, the current sort of T-cell armamentarium, you're going to see more refinement of these first-gen products uh, in terms of uh, really, really honing in now with deep, deep genomic sequencing, really understanding responders versus non-responders. So I think that that pathway is sort of going to go along in parallel, and then you're going to see this next gen of products coming through and providing we can crack some of these math and engineering problems and we're able to really double down and uh, harvest out and, and then couple with the ideas around allogeneic versus autologous, I think it's going to be a pretty exciting time and a scary time, depending on which side of the fence you're sitting on. From a company perspective, there's so much innovation. From the regulatory perspective, it's going to be about fundamentals, right? Safety, reproducibility, CMC parameters, crit critical quality attributes. So there's some thoughts for you. I'd like to add some thoughts there that um, I think it's not just the cell types to worry about, but what you do with the cells. So uh, I think it's well known that you electropate something long enough, you, you fry it, right? You, you uh, cook it the, with enough virus, it'll die. Uh, IL-2 is known to cause exhaustion and potentially even apoptosis. And so I think the process by which you, you generate your therapy is really critical to try to optimize the phenotype, not necessarily just at infusion, but at the six or 12 month mark where you want to be in terms of durability of the product. Great. Let's talk about safety engineering. Um, so we've seen great response rates uh, for some CAR-Ts, but uh, toxicities such as cytokine release syndrome, neurotox, uh, have limited maybe broader use than they would otherwise have. So what do you see as the major developments in making T-cell therapies safer, and would appreciate any comments on synthetic biology in, in particular? Uh, maybe we'll start with Robert, and then uh, anyone jump in after that. So I'll give a very highly biased opinion that um, safety begins with the target. And so if you target something that is also expressed on normal tissue, then you'll get the on-target on off-tumor activity, which uh, we certainly have heard about even this morning. And so that's why at NEON we focus on neoantigens. And so these are mutation-based epitopes um, that really should only be produced and expressed in tumor cells. So if you start there, then hopefully you get that intimate tumor specificity to begin with and may not necessarily need the off-switches or other bells and whistles you may need with other approaches. I, I would echo that, that uh, and I would focus on the starting material. 
again, turning to that, that phenotype, uh, what we're learning there, if you're starting with a healthier phenotype, a more central memory phenotype, uh, you're starting from a better place. And the growing body of evidence that that drives uh, or significantly influences tolerability and toxicities and safety. Uh, if, if that's the key to it, then as, as Robert said, uh, the question about the synthetic biology and what else do you do to the cell changes uh, dramatically. Uh, so being able to start from a healthy donor, whether it's T cells or NK cells or different types, uh, I think is, is the first thing that we're looking forward to seeing the clinical data of, of is this, uh, does this drive a difference? And if so, then from that standpoint, what else can we do to improve uh, tolerability and safety? So there's a couple of modules that I, I tend to think about when I think of safety for the for products moving forward now. So clearly a gentleman asked a question this morning which I thought was a great question, which was around, you know, the fundamentals around pathology, right? Do we really understand where antigens are really expressed? And I think that that remains a conundrum, right? You get an antigen that's expressed on the surface of cells intraluminally, how do neoantigens then present? So that's a whole, whole area that I think uh, there's a burgeoning sort of industry around improvements there. Then there's a synthetic biology component, which is can we really, we, we know for a fact now that T cells are really, really powerful. There's no doubt about it. T cells get into places where we couldn't have imagined. Uh, but that comes at a price sometimes, cytokine release, neurotoxicity, et cetera, and that's where the synthetic biology breaks as such, uh, you know, are really being looked at carefully. I'm you know, personally, somebody who would rather not develop kill switches, but rather have regulatable technology, uh, because it's so hard and precious to grow cells in the first place for these patients, and then to kill them kind of seems such a waste, right, and lost opportunity. So I think there, there is that sort of um, safety element. And then the third piece is then, where, what are we really understanding about safety in the clinical setting now? And, uh, you know, clearly with the first generation of CAR-Ts, we talk about ameliorating CRS from a clinical perspective, but that now I think is gonna now evolve and change with the various protocols that are being developed. We're gonna get better, I think, at other modalities, looking at other upstream components of CRS, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, CSF modulation, therefore, neurotoxicity, et cetera. So I think those are kind of the, 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 the fields that I see emerging. It's not, not one area of safety in particular, you're gonna have to look at it in terms of a totality all the way from preclinical to the reality of how these products have been utilized and the findings in a clinical setting. Well, if I, I could just add something around safety, I'd, I'd be interested to know, has a safety switch ever been used in a clinic? Um, I mean, they, they sound really cool, but it's like buying a ran, Land Rover with a roll cage, right? You, know, <laughs> you don't take that thing off road. Uh, and re the reality is that um, let's, figure out technologies, the things that will actually be really clinically meaningfully useful. You know, I think one of the things that we, it's great to re-engineer and, and apply these modern, uh, um, unbelievably new and, and exciting science, but the other space that we need to focus on, and I think we learned from the checkpoint inhibitor days, is a great example is CTLA-4, and you know, Axel could probably speak to this better than anybody, but managing the safety from a clinical perspective, I know there's a lot of work going on there, but I, I would love to see much more effort around the cell and gene therapies. We just now have standardization of some of the safety events. And CTLA-4 really stayed in the academic centers 
during the development and the subsequent commercialization for, you could argue, many reasons, uh, but it never really made it into the community settings, uh, so to speak. And I think, you know, just to, from a different angle, for these agents really to get managed, the education curve has to increase. They have to get out in the community setting eventually. And just like all other oncology agents, they're going to have something that the smart medical community will eventually figure out. But we need to invest in that piece as well. Great. So on to the topic of manufacturing, which has uh, posed a lot of challenges for the advanced therapeutic space. Um, what, what kind of advances are you seeing that can help with the overlapping goals of improving automation, increasing yields, bringing down costs, and shortening manufacturing time overall? Let's start with Eamon, since you're from a, a resource-rich organization. Sorry. They spilled it. It's easier. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Put me on the spot. You know, Excellent. You have resources. <laughs> All the big caps um, have, have a... Yeah. So uh, there, there's one thing for sure. The manual processes are not sustainable. Uh, and we're, you know, in front of our eyes, we're witnessing whether it's the, you know, the Miltani technology or, you know, I went to a presentation about cocoon farms, uh, the Lanza uh, cocoons, uh, and stacking those up and creating cocoon farms. And, and certainly, you know, um, the centralized technology uh, pieces have to, have to evolve. But I think w one, of the, one of the bigger questions is, uh, and I think, you know, Oz mentioned this actually during a call one time, is it going to be uh, the pharma who figures this out, or is it going to be uh, another industry, right? It's, a, it's an engineering issue. And the question is, how do we enable and apply and, and really kind of invest in these emerging technologies? So if you ask me, do I know what it's going to look like two years from now? It's probably going to be those two that are furthest along, the Cocoon or the Miltani. Um, if I look out five years from now, there's potentially going to be some new technologies that, that we'll be looking at uh, just like two years ago we you know nobody had heard of a Miltani or, or, or a Lanza cocoon. So um, I was just going back to some early memories tri uh, trips there when you just mentioned I was thinking back to the early days of Kim Raya um, when that product was tech transferred in from Penn when I was still at Novartis and uh, <laughs> I remember the first time I really started to look at batch records uh, in quality and you would literally have a pile this high uh, in terms of batch records put, put for a patient. And, and that wasn't that long ago, guys, realistically. And just the fact that we went from uh, you know, paper-based to electronic notebook format and electronic records just on the processing side, right? I kid you not, that, that really made a difference uh, in terms of uh, you know, cutting the resources that were required on the quality front. I'm just giving you a practical example. That wasn't that long ago. We're talking about 13, 14 to 18, 19 now, uh, where those steps were taken. So I think that there are, there's, some, there's such been radical sort of improvement and innovation on, on the front of companies themselves, but also innovators around the companies that are supporting this thinking in terms of technology, certainly for autologous products on every part of the touch point, be that from the apheresis enrichment point to the selection stimulation, to then, you know, the harvesting of cells to finish fill, et cetera. I think where the jury's kind of out for me is, are we really gonna be looking to that sort of cell therapies in a box model? You know, so is that where 
centers would prefer to gravitate because let's face it, what we've done as an industry is kind of turned the healthcare system upside down when we think about cell therapies and administration, right? If you're running a transplant center and you have a well hung machine, right? You're now dealing with where, you know, a cost basis where you did a lot of the treatment, manu you know, the product was there. And now how does this all fit in, right? To, to those folks, it may be very attractive business-wise to have cell therapies in a box, right? Where you, you know, the company sends the kit in a box just like you get your, you know, online dinners ordered. <laughs> and, you know, it comes in a package and the actual manufacturing is done at the center. That, that's still something that, you know, a lot of centers I talk to still aspire to that. Um, and then we have the other end of centralized manufacturing, certainly for autologous therapies, where allogeneics are going to fit into all of this is going to be very, very interesting. And I think people are, we're not ready to double down in one or the other, right? Because at the end of the day, reproducibility of the data isn't there yet, right? And, uh, but I do see that, you know, in terms of fundamental blocking and tackling around scale, it's starting to happen. But I do think we will need to take a leaf out of other industries. Because again, I keep saying this, but to me, it always seems like a math and engineering problem when we think about it. Um, but also, you know, the components of people, the capabilities, um, the biomedical engineering kind of brain and mindset that we probably need to bring more into the equation, right? Because most of us have grown up doing this from a life sciences pharma perspective, right? But we probably do need to learn from others. Uh, is, you know, the AI field, for example, how are we gonna apply those learnings to what we're trying to do in the cell and gene therapy. So I think that uh, next couple of years, just looking at what's happened in, in the real world setting, I'm optimistic that there's gonna be one or two nuggets that will emerge in the next couple of years on, on this front, together with the whole chain of identity around these products. Yeah, and certainly, uh, you know, Oz just hit on, on some of the differences, and I think it's, it's a mistake to look for the one answer uh, here, because these these are different products, different applications. Certainly, you know where precision is working is is healthy donor derived off the shelf allogeneic CAR Ts, and that's an area that we believe lends itself to more traditional quote unquote manufacturing. You know, we have you all asked about the the time frame for a process. We have a ten day manufacturing process from a fresh Luca pack to packaged product, but that time frame is irrelevant. The point is we put a shelf. Uh, we put a product on the shelf ready to use when you need it. Um, and so being able to do that and, and generate multiple doses, I and mean, where, where precision is now, out of a single Luca pack from a single donor, we, a GMP run is generating 150 to 200 doses at a cost that's on par with an antibody. Um, that, it, assuming this all pans out in the clinic, which is obviously the next uh, critical step here. Uh, that's, a, you know, that's the goal, is to have something that looks as much like a drug uh, as, as anything else, because that's gonna be familiar to physicians and, and hopefully it can be deployed that way. But is that gonna be the answer for everything in cell therapy? Absolutely not. Uh, and to Oz's comment about um, math and engineering, just looking at the math of CAR-T versus TCRs for solid tumors. The doses, the number of cells that you need in the current TCR doses for solid tumors is so much dramatically higher than CAR-T. Can precision or, or any of the healthy donor-derived uh, companies working on healthy donor-derived CAR-Ts just take their process and flip it over to TCRs? The efficiencies aren't there because of the, the massive scale that uh, you have to 
do for TCRs at the doses they require. So there may be a different solution there. We, we hope that we have the answer for allogeneic CAR-T, but is that going to be the answer or can we get it to the answer? For other applications, possibly, uh, but it's going to be a longer path, and it may be that going down the, as Eamon was talking about in his presentation, what GSK has put into making that process as efficient as possible for uh, the adapting products at uh, the sites that they're going to be used at may be the solution for years to come uh, before we can get to a, a more efficient, scalable manufacturing process. And that's great. If that's what gets it to as many patients as possible, that's what we want to see. If I could just, one, one additional comment I didn't touch on. You know, we have to keep in mind there's two parts to this manufacturing, right? There's a vector and then there's a cell processing, each with, with different innovations happening. And I think I just want to mention the, the work that's happening in the viral vector uh, technologies is just as important at least for the current, you know, uh, at least for, for a large number of products. But I think we have to keep our eye on both because the challenge is, from a regulatory perspective, the lead time to change course on a manufacturing process in a development paradigm is not something you can just switch on a dime. You know, you, you change one piece of that and you can disrupt your timelines for a long time. So. How do we, how do we, we have two moving parts, and how do we switch between those two in a timely way and still get these medicines to patients fast enough? Okay, two more questions. Um, the first is, what important new trend will we be talking about at this conference in 2020? We'll start with Robert and work our way towards me. Well, I think we're already seeing it. Uh, even at J.P. Morgan this year, uh, there was a lot less mention of cars and a lot more mention of TCRs. And so I think really trying to crack the solid tumor nut, um, I'm hoping that you know industry does that uh, and, and makes good inroads for the benefit of the patients. Uh, I may be a little biased here, but the allogeneic CAR-Ts. Servier uh, and Allogene have candidates in the clinic. We are, Precision is starting our dosing next month. Uh, over 2019 and into 2020, we're gonna have what is hopefully a pretty definitive answer about whether this is an approach that is, is viable or not. And certainly, you know, we're hoping for the former, uh, but I think either way, uh, this will be a significant topic of conversation. I think this time next year, 2020, we'll be talking about myeloma with BCMA. I think that's going to be a reality based on what I'm hearing from my pals at Bluebird and, and others. So I'm really, really excited about that. That expands the CAR-T world significantly, I think. Then obviously everybody watching that data for persistence and durability and true responses for patients, I agree with Michael in terms of uh, we're on the cusp of real data emerging now from the allergenic world, be that Selectus, be that Allergene, be that uh, Precision and others who are investing heavily. Um, and I think those are probably going to be the two biggie things. And then last, but I, I think also we're going to see, and Michael Kalos pointed, pointed this in his presentation, I think we really are going to have um, a greater appreciation of um, immunosuppression and immunobiology in the setting of really trying to design good trials that get to look at combination approaches with cell therapies. I think that you're going to see that coming of age in 2020 in a number of scientific meetings. 
So I, I, I think, well, first and foremost, I hope we have more patients like Emily Whitehead or, you know, a patient this morning with some of these really good success stories that uh, will help further advance the field and keep generating the momentum that we all need. Secondly, I think we uh, will probably start hearing a little bit more about the two camps, right? You're either a cell therapy camp or a company or you're a bispecific antibody, a CD3-directed camp person, right? I, I think we'll start learning a bit more about um, some of the, the, the bispecifics or the CD3-directed programs and, and how that compares uh, potentially. Uh, still early days, but I think we'll get more of that. And third of all, and what really what I'm hoping is we stop building new technologies on old infrastructure, right? We do one study, one question, one answer. And really, to move this field forward, we're going to have to figure out, and we're already doing it through master protocols and multi-cohort trials, but the field really needs to move beyond how we've always done it and, and really innovate from a clinical trial design and regulatory interface. Great. And my favorite question to ask panels, uh, will each panelist ask a fellow panelist a question? Uh, I'm not part of the panel for this one. Um, I'll start with Eamon and Oz, then Mike and Robert. Okay, I'll, I'll start. So, um, Oz, um, so, you know, in, in developing a program, you, you're always at that kind of making the trade-off between small indication, high science, bigger indication, higher business case, lower probability of success, right? And these are the typical trade-offs uh, that you do. And, uh, you know, the new, obviously, for the last decade or so, it's always been get there as fast as you can and, and create value in parallel uh, with, uh, with other indications. So, in a you know a company like Community, kind of what what goes through your head as you're making those decisions with multiple choices and multiple products? Keeps me up at night in a good way. Um, so look, I believe in multiple shots on goals. I believe in aggressively accumulating as many targets as you can, because I think you know one thing I've learned is that even with a orphan targeted strategy, um, you can you know develop a good beachhead and expand rapidly quickly in cancer biology, uh, if you're smart. Uh, and I think that that's gonna be, you know, the way this field is gonna be won, actually. I mean, you drew it on your slides. You know, that's not beyond the realms of possibility in solid tumor thinking, right? If you look at, uh, you know, the PD-1 story, exactly the same, right? Went in targeted, and, and look, look now where the investments have been made, how many patients potentially are gonna be benefiting. I think allied to that, and what I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, in a company like mine is companion diagnostics. So, you know, I can't afford um, to have a richer state of portfolio of assets, and I'm really privileged that we have over, you know, a dozen targets, and we're in the clinic with programs and trying to get two INDs open a year, which is aggressive. But all of that is for naught. If I can't identify the patients, I can't stratify for it, and I can't then bridge over and show to regulators and to partners, right, the maintenance of these therapies and the benefits for, for patients. So I hope I gave you a sense of how I'm thinking about it. It's a great problem to have, but there's a couple of other modules you need to add if you really want to stay ahead of the game here. Oz, your question? So my question was to Michael. <laughs> my question as a business development professional, how are you really thinking about the M&A space shaking up now for Cellengine, knowing what's happened? You've seen these huge transactions happen. 
Um, but now, obviously, there's all these enabling technologies. You guys are at the cutting edge of that. So how do you think that that's going to pan out in the next two years? We were back here in two years' time. So I think right now there's, there's a wait-and-see mentality. The, the, what we're seeing is the, the early adoption wave is done, and we're just starting to get into the wider spread adoption. And, and what I'm hearing is companies that chose to sit on the sidelines and said, we're not, we don't want to be first at this. We want to see where it goes and is there going to be something here, um, are now starting to f at least familiarize themselves with the state of the industry and where uh, companies like Precision uh, and Team Unity are in, in the work that they're doing as uh, they think about, well, if, if this continues to pan out, we're going to have to place our bets. And I think uh, to the earlier question about what are we going to be talking about and you know in 2020 about this, if the data that's expected over the next year, year and a half, two years pans out and there you know we have we continue as an industry to have the successes that we're going to have, you're going to see this shift from this I'm sort of ready to adopt maybe to this is going to be unleashed. Um, and so I, my sense is there's this building demand that's just not quite ready, but there's going to be something that unleashes it, and then you're going to see basically a gold rush uh, of, okay, we need to place our bets before we get left out uh, among, the, among the large players. What do, we, what do we buy? What do we license uh, so that we, we keep up with the field? And Mike, your question? Uh, so my question is actually to Eamon and is based on that. Uh, if there's, you know, what one piece of evidence or answer to a question do you think would do the most to mainstream cell therapies within the industry and, and the medical community? I mean, there's no doubt that y y these things have to be uh, more easy to use and in the community setting somehow. Um, and how, how we get there um, is... The, the big the big elephant uh, in in the room I think for the autologous treatments right it may be a little bit easier different I shouldn't say easier it's ne never easy but um, if if we get to a point where uh, a you can easily identify the right patient you know it's unfortunate we're still even at 2019 we're still having to use the same tissue to send three different tests to four different companies to get three different results and we don't have the panels that we need to that have in hematologic tumors and and with HLA restrictions and in a you know doing two diagnostic this is complicated stuff um, it's all about who's going to help us simplify and who's going to help us get this um, in the hands of the people who are treating most of the cancer patients is going to make the biggest difference and uh, and that that gives you the global uh, the global uh, footprint as well. So, and then Robert, last question, and All right, we I'll have be, to move a little bit quickly. I'll be quick. I'm going to pick an imune as well. Um, so, the the dose question with TCRs versus CARs. Uh, do you think that's a fundamental biology issue with the target density and the avidity of the TCR to the peptide MHC, or do you think there's other things that can be done to lower the amount of cells needed? Wow, that's a great question. And one of my mentors early in my career who's developed more drugs than anybody I've ever met told me, I just want to get one dose right. You know, <laughs> started on Taxotere. Uh, we never got the dose right for Taxotere, I don't think, for any, any 
product. And then my la the last program I worked on was PDL one, and you know trying to get that dose right was not straightforward. And many many of your room can can share that. I don't think we'll ever get the perfect dose for cell therapies, and uh, if we do, it'll it should it should really win a. Uh, big prize. So I know we're running out of time, but I don't know <laughs> is the answer. Okay, great. Thanks everyone for joining this panel and special thanks to the panelists. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. The 2020 IO360 program will take place February 26th through 28th at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.